I'm David Weaver, and I uh, just start straight off with the newest from the Gila Films uh, headquarters. Um, overhauled the website the other night. Uh, realized that we're uh, it's a good thing we're getting onto a lot of different uh, streaming platforms, and the the site was getting rather clunky. We're now up to eight different platforms that uh, carry us. Uh, so I went through and revamped the site, um, made it a little uh, a little cleaner, a little more easier to, to scroll through. Um, and there you can find links to each of those eight platforms. We are now on Amazon Prime, YouTube, Tubi, iTunes, Plex TV, Darkroom, Woku, and our latest edition is Zumo Play. So check those out. And in case you've forgotten, of course, our website address is gila-film.com. That's G-I-L-A-F-I-L-M.com. Things continue to go really well for Break Glass, the latest feature film from Gila Films family member Jay Leonard, producer of our horror flick The Last Frankenstein. We've talked about this movie recently, how it was uh, just playing at the Jersey Shore Film Festival. In fact, it literally just played there last night. And um, just since our last episode, uh, Break Glass has been accepted into two additional film festivals. It will be playing at the New York Liftoff Film Festival and also at the Monadnock International Film Festival. So big shout out to everyone uh, on the Break Glass team, which, as I mentioned, also includes Last Frankenstein cast members Jeffrey Anno, Keely Sheridan, and Jorge Luna. So stay tuned to uh, the Facebook page uh, as they get more info on when the exact screening dates will be and such. That's uh, Break Glass Movie is the name of the Facebook page for that. So we recently hyped up some upcoming Blu-ray announcements from a newer label called Film Masters. Um, we talked about their upcoming double feature release of The Giant Gila Monster and the Killer Shrews, and that should be followed by a double feature release of Beast from Haunted Cave and Ski Troop Attack. And uh, they uh, put out a statement, actually, to kind of give out more information on their label and its uh, background. And it turns out it is indeed... There had basically been a lot of suspicion that this was... Uh, that this label was uh, an offshoot of the film detective, the company known as the film detective. And sure enough, Film Masters is uh, a boutique label which has been founded by Phil Hopkins, the founder of Film Detective. And they're planning on doing one Blu-ray a month, which is incredible because just just initially these, these first two releases uh, are killer. And the work that uh, had been done by the film detective over the last uh, year or so, um, so many classic cult films and um, other uh, other other types of movies as well. But um, this is just really exciting. They're going to be uh, keeping up at a pace of uh, one Blu-ray a month. They've got this uh, great team of different people who are going to be involved with the releases, including uh, Larry Blamere, who is a uh, filmmaker in his own right. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with his Lost Skeleton of Cadaver movies, which uh, pay homage to the old B-movies of the 50s. Um, he's a comedy, science fiction films he's done, but he's also a uh, historian, uh, very knowledgeable about cult cinema. Uh, Daniel Griffith of um, of Valley Who Motion Pictures is on board. Uh, Tom Weaver, no relation to me, but he actually does live in New York State as well. Really well-known of historian who's published these great interview books with uh, people who worked both in front of and behind the camera on uh, a lot of cult classics. Uh, he's going to be involved. He's done a lot of commentary tracks for Keena Lorber as well. Uh, Jason A. Nay, C. Courtney Joyner, again, two more really well-known film scholars. Sam Sherman, who I, I assume it's the same Sam Sherman who was an exploitation producer in his own right and who uh, was behind many Val Adamson's movies. So this is uh, this is definitely uh, something I'm really keen to see how this plays out. They actually teased their next release uh, to be following the Beast from Hunted Cave Ski Troop Attack uh, double feature, and that will be the uh, 1934 version of The Scarlet Letter uh, starring Colleen Moore. This is the first sound adaptation of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, um, and it never had a, even a decent DVD release, never been on Blu-ray and never had a good DVD release. It's always like, you know, dollar store DVDs. It's the only way you could really find that, that, that level of, uh, a quality, but they're doing a, uh, 4k, a 4k restoration on it, 
um, from original 35 millimeter archival elements. Uh, not too many details beyond that. They just tease the title. And if you go over to the Film Masters website, um, you can see the the cover art as well as pre-order the other two titles. But yeah, definitely really super stoked for this. Um, of course, cult film fans know that right now uh, there's a big sale going on over at Vinegar Syndrome, a week-long sale that they're having. Um, and Severn Films just had their big uh, sale. Basically, for Severn, it's kind of equivalent to a, they don't call it that, but it's equivalent to a halfway to Black Friday sale. And Vinegar Syndrome already had something like that recently. But this the sale that Vinegar Syndrome is having right now, uh, they're basically doing uh, these great deals on different different select group of titles every day. Um, ending Friday. But they also announced some new releases, too. They're uh, putting out, uh, and this was kind of a, not what I would have expected necessarily from them, at least not from their main Vinegar Syndrome line, and that is they're putting out on 4K UHD the classic 1961 uh, monster movie Gorgo, which was kind of like the essentially the UK response uh, to Godzilla. That's kind of dumbing it down, <laughs> but you could you could uh, sum it up as that, I guess, basically. Um, but I, I guess I would have now that they've started this new sub-label, Vinegar Syndrome Labs, I guess I wouldn't have been surprised if it came out via that late line because they've been tackling older films with that line. But uh, definitely was surprised that they put it out on their, just their main line. They, now, they're also putting out on 4K um, the 80s uh, slasher Terror at 10 Killer, um, which is a movie that was made by the same people who started the label VCI, the, the boutique label VCI, which is still in business. And this is probably how they ended up with Gorgo because um, they, they licensed Terra at 10 Killer from VCI, who apparently didn't, weren't interested or, or got a better offer from Vinegar Syndrome to put this out uh, on Blu-ray and uh, 4K. And I'm guessing that because VCI has put out the last Blu-ray and DVD releases of Gorgo, that that kind of came in on the deal too. Um, they also, another one, they announced several titles, but another one of those that really stood out uh, that uh, Vinegar Syndrome uh, just announced this past week was the 1972 uh, Italian horror film Delirium, um, starring Mickey Hargerty, which uh, is cons- looked at a lot as uh, one of the sleazier uh, Gialli films of its era. Um, but yeah, definitely, I'm definitely down to check that out. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, Mickey Hargerty's uh, 60s Italian horror film, Bloody Pit of Horror, uh, that's a lot of fun. Severn put that out on Blu-ray. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to checking this out as well. But, yeah, you got till Friday if you want to add some stuff each day. They're putting up new titles at noon. Um, and like I said, it's like really great deals, like 12 14 bucks 14 a pop. So check that out. Shout Factory and their late sub-label Scream Factory also uh, really knocked it out the park with some new announcements this week. Um, they're going to be upgrading their Blu-ray release of My Bloody Valentine and also their Blu-ray release of Night of the Comet, uh, both the 4K, which I guess is a terribly surprising with My Bloody Valentine especially. I'm at the point now where if I don't own even a, any horror film that's even like semi-major in reputation, even like just like a, a moderately well-known or it's made by any... any uh, director with any type of uh, cachet to his, his name. It's like, I'm, I don't own it on Blu-ray yet. I'm kind of like, at this point, I'm like, might as well just wait to see if they put it out on 4K because everything's getting 4K. I'm sure that they'll put out April Fool's Day on 4K, although I already own that Blu-ray. I mean, you're kind of at the point now where it's like, it's, if it's by Carpenter or Fulci or Craven or Toby Hooper, unless maybe it's one of their TV movies or something, all the stuff's going to eventually come out in 4K. It's great, though. I mean, it's great to see the uh, the increase in detail and the use of uh, high dynamic range on a lot of these releases, so I'm definitely uh, all about it. They're also bringing to Blu-ray for the first time uh, the 1977 uh, Killer Dogs movie, The Pack, which I'm a huge fan of that movie. I used to have the old Warner Brothers VHS clamshell tape of that, and then I got the um, Warner Archive DVD, which they put out uh, a lot of, I mean, Robert Yerkes, the star of the movie, a lot of other great character actors in supporting roles. B.B. Besh, you know, Carol Marcus from Star Trek II is in it. Um, R.G. Armstrong, who is in so many of Sam Peckinpah's films. Paul Wilson from Cheers. Uh, it's about uh, basically a, a bunch of, as, as the title implies, a bunch of wild dogs packed together on this island, which is mostly a vacation spot for uh, people to go, like, fishing and whatnot. But at the time that the events are unfolding, uh, it's pretty much most of the people are going, have gone back to the mainland and it's just the actual uh, year-round residents who are left behind and who have to face this threat and find a way to uh, uh, get off the island or at least get in touch with someone from the mainland. Um, 
this is one of those movies that used to play late night on TNT. I remember back in the day. Um, also went by also went by the title The Long Dark Night. Um, but just uh, it's just a uh, one of those films. It has such a rewatchable factor to it. Um, definitely part of that is this cast is such a rugged cast. Uh, the dogs look great. They really do look really vicious. Um, it's a pretty tame movie in terms of like, not in terms of um, violence or menace, but in actual gore. Like it's a, it's, it's made during that time where, you know, this is pre PG 13. So you could have a, you basically went from PG rating to R rating. So you might have a PG movie with topless women and then a R rated movie. That's really not, it would basically be a PG thirteen now, and the pack's kind of in that latter group where it's like, it would it would be just a PG thirteen if it came out now. But uh, and I don't say that to uh, put the film down in the sense of uh, what it offers as a horror film. Um, it just has a it has a great sense of the location, this kind of like coastal island, uh, kind of like uh, in the fall time. Um, and yeah, and I I just again it kind of goes to that classic horror trope of these you know you're this group of people stranded. Uh, alone with, uh, you know, facing this kind of like menacing larger force. It's the the, the living dead kind of story, except instead of zombies, it's dogs. Uh, so really looking forward to checking that out. Um, kind of curious what they're going to do for extras. Um, there are some of the cast members are still around. Uh, I know Paul Wilson, I think, was involved with the uh, the extras for the Devonsville, the Devonsville uh, Terror, which he was also in. Um, so maybe look at him. I think Jordan Baker's not doing extras anymore. He's still alive, but I think he just kind of was like enough <laughs> with that. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, and they also announced through just Shout Factory, not Screen Factory, but the main Shout Factory line is there, and this is right in my wheelhouse, is they're putting out an Irwin Allen Master of Disaster box set. So Irwin Allen, a legendary uh, producer, uh, won an Oscar early in his career for the documentary they see around us. Um, did some feature films like the story of mankind and the lost world and voyage to the bottom of the sea, the original feature film, and then became a very, uh, successful television producer in the sixties. He did the voyage of the, to the bottom of the sea TV show, uh, lost in space, the time tunnel, um, land of the giants. And then in the seventies, he made his name as, uh, this producer of disaster films. Uh, the two best known examples being his first two forays into that genre, the Poseidon adventure and the Towering Inferno. Well, throughout the rest of the 70s into the early 80s, he produced a series of five made-for-television disaster films, uh, as well as uh, three more uh, feature films for the big screen. Um, Now, one of these feature films, The Swarm, has already been put out on Blu-ray by um, Warner Archive. Uh, Alan directed and produced that. But the other seven films... They will be released as part of this box set, and it will be uh, the Blu-ray debut for all of them. So the five TV movies he did were uh, Flood, Fire, Hanging by a Thread, which is about uh, a group of people uh, trapped on this dangling like uh, dangling tram um, coming back from a mountain ride, uh, The Night the Bridge Fell Down, and Caven. A lot of uh, familiar faces in these movies, uh, Leslie Nielsen, Ray Milland, uh, Patty Duke, uh, Donna Mills, Ernest Borgnine. Um, they're a lot of fun. Um, the, couple, the two of them, Hanging by a Thread and The Night the Bridge Fell Down, those were uh, two-part TV movies. Uh, kind of, they, The Night the Bridge Fell Down is definitely <laughs> very padded to, to get to that uh, two-part uh, status, but they're all really enjoyable. Um, you know, there's kind of like these two, uh, two figures who are kind of big in the disaster genre of the 70s. You know, Erwin Allen was one, and then uh, I, I think Jennings Lang is really the one, the other one. He was the, the producer behind Earthquake, and not the original Airport, but he produced the three sequels. He was over at Universal with those films. Um, and of course, I've waxed philosophical many times about my love for the Universal look of the 1970s, but um, these Allen films are also equally enjoyable. Uh, this is one of my... Uh, favorite genres of this decade. It's a genre that's completely linked with this decade. Uh, the assembly of, uh, you know, these uh, huge casts, uh, huge big name casts, and then going through uh, 
the the steps of killing them off in wonderfully slow motion ways um, while mixing in elements of uh, soap opera material on the side it's just it's just uh, gloriously trashy now these are the lesser ones in terms of quality for sure i mean i enjoy all the disaster movies of the 70s but there's no denying that these are the lesser the lesser films and the tv movies obviously are made on a very much apparent smaller budget and their names are not as big in those um but still fun and now the two feature films in the set are beyond the poseidon adventure and when time ran out now beyond the poseidon adventure 1979 again alan like the swarm the year before he directed and produced this it would be the last film he would direct he would continue to produce but it would be the last one he actually direct um and michael kane who had been the star of the swarm also did this one as well also had um slim pickens was in both of them as well Sally Field, uh, Carl Malden, Peter Boyle, uh, Angela Cartwright from Lost in Space, Telly Savalas, Jack Warden, uh, Shirley Jones, that's just some of the other people in this. And this is basically, uh, the premise of this is that there were some other survivors uh, who we didn't know about uh, from the original Poseidon Adventure movie who are now trying to find their way out. Um, but they have to contend with uh, essentially uh, <laughs> modern-day uh, pirates. Uh, Tally Savalas is there to uh, uh, strip the uh, the Poseidon of its cargo. So that I, uh, yeah. So that you know, my my whole thoughts on that and the swarm were that uh, it's interesting because the Towering Inferno and the Poseidon Adventure are truly good films. The Towering Inferno. One of my all-time favorite films, just hands down. And that came; those came out in respectively 1972 and 1974. Um, and Alan, on those, he was producer and he was kind of basically a co-director. So he was listed as directing the action sequences, and then um, that's that's how he put it in the credits. And then the other scenes, which I guess you'd assume were the dialogue, character-driven scenes, they were directed by other directors. So beside an adventure, it was Ronald Neem, very well-known British filmmaker, and uh, likewise, the Tarang Inferno, it was John Gillerman, another well-known British director. But for the swarm and the the beside beyond the beside adventure, Alan took that responsibility completely on himself to direct. And it's interesting that there's this gap of four years because both those films were huge hits: 1972 Beside Adventure. 1974 Town Inferno, and then he waits four years before he does The Swarm. Um, instead of just going into another theatrical le- release, he puts out a couple of those TV movies in the meantime. I don't know why he did that. Uh, if it was just to kind of like maybe milk it for more of what it's worth. Maybe it's kind of like the uh, 1970s equivalent of what Marvel does now, where they throw some streaming shows in between their feature films. But definitely uh, coming back to do The Swarm, um, yeah, it's just nowhere near on the level of those earlier films. Um, again, I think The Swarm is a lot of fun. I like watching it. Um, but it's not uh, a good film. It, it lacks the it lacks the uh, artistic strengths of the earlier films. Uh, the acting is poorer. Um, the screenplay is, even though a lot of times these were a lot of the same writers, I mean, Sterling Siliphant, Academy Award winning writer of In the Heat of the Night, creator of Route 66, was the writer on most of these films. Um, the, the theatrical release ones that Alan made. Uh, and the script's really <laughs> rough. Uh, yeah, I don't know what exactly happened in that four years, but it wasn't great. Um, not, again, not so much for your enjoy- entertainment factor, but for uh, the quality factor. And Beyond the Senate Adventures, you know, in, the, in that same kind of uh, uh, problem area. Uh, another thing about Beyond the Senate Adventure is you know, when you go to see a disaster film, you really want the disaster to be something uh, on an epic scale. So, like, you know, the Tower of Inferno is people trapped at the top of this massive skyscraper and fire just climbing up. And beside an adventure, it's uh, that great tagline, hell upside down, you're on the ship, and it's turned upside down. So now you're trying to make the way to the bottom of the ship, which is now on top. Um, you know, Airport 75 and 77 and all those, you know, uh, these great airline collisions or the Airport 77 is where the jack lemon's piling the plane and it goes underwater those are really high stakes pretty big big scale uh disasters that are facing now you get to something like beyond the poseidon adventure and it's like well we already kind of went through this once before yeah the ships the ships capsized and upside down and now kind of like even a bigger threat than just trying to get out the ship is telly savalas and his goons and like that's not really something a threat worthy of a disaster movie i mean just you know a bunch of bad guys going around with henchmen and whatnot you know that's like 
I mean, that's something you could find in any uh, action or suspense film. So it's kind of like a lower stakes uh, disaster that kind of, uh, you know, that's kind of attached to it. That definitely does not work in its favor. Um, now, when time ran out, that is the other feature film on this set that came out in 1980. <clears throat> and again, Alan, by this time, uh, no longer directing, he produced it. James Goldstone directed it. Um, and this, this film is that is after this film is a volcano, which, uh, you know, that's a, that's a solid enough, uh, idea for a disaster film. Uh, definitely right up there with earthquakes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's a, a volcano on an Island. Um, top, top drawer cast again you got paul newman uh who basically did this to fulfill a contractual obligation he had left over from the town inferno william holden who's kind of in the same boat uh jacqueline Bassett, ernest borgdine again red buttons uh, alex karras for all you football fans edward albert eddie albert's son he's on there and uh before he was big uh pat morita uh, mr miyagi is in it um this film was a huge uh bomb when it came out and again rightly so um it just it's just rehashing whole ideas from the earlier movies um you know for example in the towering inferno well actually if you go back to the poseidon adventure one of the the famous scenes for the poseidon adventure is where to get from one section to another of the capsized uh ship that everyone's trapped on um gene hackman the lead actor in the film has to uh swim through some submerged sections of the ship with a, a rope as kind of like a tow line. And he has to reach uh, a dry section of the ship where he can tie the tow line so that people can then follow this line underwater to get to a part of the ship where there is, uh, where they can, uh, you know, breathe air again. And he gets trapped as he, as he's s- s- traveling underneath the water and Shelley Winters in her Academy Award nominated performance and uh, the supporting cast of this film, who uh, is a former expert swimmer. She has to go underneath the water uh, herself to kind of rescue Gene Hackman when he gets trapped. And it's not a scene that really drags out too long or anything like that. It's a good scene. It's a really memorable scene from the movie. They kind of revisited it in The Towering Inferno, where in this case, there's a scene in that film where uh, Paul Newman, uh, one of the, one of the uh, along with Steve McQueen, one of the, le- the leads of that, that film, where Paul Newman is trying to get uh, Jennifer Jones, the old Fox movie starlet, uh, where he's trying to get her and these two kids to safety. Um, and so they have to travel from one floor to another along this dangling, broken stairway that's just hanging down uh, this 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 shaft over this chasm. And so, well, you know, Newman has to go travel by himself, then grab one of the kids, bring them down with him. Um, and it's kind of basically a, a variation of of that Hackman winter scene in the Poseidon Adventure. It is the only scene in the Italian Inferno that I think is a little weak because I think they do drag that on a little bit too much. Uh, you know, it's like we watch them go up the ladder, go down the ladder, and we get it. You know, it's it's dangerous. It's threatening. Uh, you could probably tighten that up a bit. Well, in Time Ran Out, it's like, let's just take that to the nth degree. Now we're going to have Burgess Meredith as this formal, former tightrope walker in the carnival who now has to walk across this broken, uh, dangling... Uh, wooden bridge over this chasm to get away from the volcano and he's got to do it with a balance beam and with a child on his back and now they're just like completely dragging out and and ripping off from the earlier films and it's really that it's that level of like let's just let's just steal from our previous work that's kind of brought to one time right now i mean the effects are not at the level uh of the earlier films i think you know it had a pretty decent sized budget if you look at the numbers but the reality is i think that pretty much went to the cast not really into the actual you know uh effects work as much um now of course all that being said i can't wait to to get my hands on this set i enjoyed the film um but it was it was kind of like the last breath of the theatrical release uh, side of the disaster genre of the 70s. You know, Airport is kind of looked at as the film. The, the first Airport came out in 1970. And it's kind of debatable whether you want to call that the beginning of the disaster boom of the 70s or whether you really want to call it the Poseidon Adventure, which came out in 72. Because really, the Poseidon Adventure is what kicked, off, kicked it off. And when uh, Universal saw the kind of the success of the Poseidon Adventure, the Towering Inferno, which um, both of those, if I'm not mistaken, were Fox Warner co-productions, 
uh, they kind of looked into their catalog and said, oh, yeah, we have this movie from 1970, Airport, and it had an all-star cast. And there was kind of a, had many different plot elements to it, but one of them was a disaster element of this uh, bomber on board an airplane. So let's just make sequels to that. So, you know, the original Airport is kind of almost like retconned into the disaster genre, and it is its own way, a disaster film. And the demise of the genre really kind of came out in like 79 and 80, where you had these films like Meteor from American International Pictures, which bombed when Time Ran Out bombed. Uh, the Concorde Airport 79 bombed. That was the last of the air, airport movies, um, which did so badly that they tried to re-release it and make it seem like it was an intentional comedy. And of course, 1980 is also when Airplane comes out and it starts making fun of all these films and is a huge hit. Um, so that's really, you know, they, there were a couple more of the TV movies that kind of made their way out in like 83-ish, but that was really the end of it. Now, <clears throat> the thing, uh, one of the things that will be interesting to see about this set, uh, aside from what extras they have on it, is specifically that film, When Time Ran Out. What, what is going to be on this set? Um, you know, we know, you know, that uh, we've seen the DVD releases of the other films, uh, the five the five TV projects and uh, Beyond the Senate Adventure. I'm sure it'll be the pretty much HD up upgrades, new scans on all that stuff. But when Time Ran Out has kind of an interesting history, it was originally released at about two hours in running length, like a uh, little over two hours. And like I said, did not do well upon release. When did he uh, went to release it internationally? They cut it down by like 20 minutes. Um, and then when they went to air it on TV, they actually beefed it up to about two and a half hours so they could fill out that three-hour time slot, which is very common with the disaster genre, uh, not just Irwin Allen stuff, but also Jennings Lang stuff. A lot of the disaster movies have longer cuts just for TV. Um, Earthquake, um, The Swarm, which is actually the Blu-ray release of The Swarm is the two and a half hour cut, the, the TV cut. Now when VHS came around, uh, Warner Brothers put out the two and a half hour cut on VHS, the the longest cut, which is what I have on I have a tape. Unfortunately, the downside to that is that, like any like most all pretty much all VHS tapes of that era, it's meant for a square TV, um, and that film was shot in a two three five to one aspect ratio, was shot in scope, which basically means in order to fit the image into that square um, without letterboxing it because they really didn't do that at the time that that VHS came out. Uh, they have to crop off basically half the image. That's really about how much gets lost. Um, and you have these compositions in that film where um, actors are talking to each other from opposite ends of the screen. And the only way to make that work um, is you basically have to, you know, choose the half of the screen where the person is talking, who's talking uh, is located and then when the other person responds, even though there wasn't initially a cut there when the film came out, you were just seeing one master shot, they then they do have to make a cut so they can go to the other side of that image. Um, now, when the DVD era came around and when Time Ran Out made its way to the DVD era, I was, you know, I was really excited to finally see this film in its original aspect ratio. And unfortunately, what happened was it wasn't a two-and-a-half-hour cut that came to DVD. It wasn't even the two-hour cut. It was the shortest cut possible, the roughly 100-minute international cut. And some people had inquired with Warner Brothers about why this was. And kind of what happened, apparently, it seems, is that you know when they went to cut the film down to that shorter international version, they apparently cut the negative, I think, is what happened, rather than cutting some kind of intermediary film source that you could then create prints from. They actually went to the original negative and cut it. And so that footage... I don't know that the negative for that 20 minutes of footage even exists anymore. Uh, and so you could, of course, restore the film to that length. You could try to find prints, or maybe they do have like an inter-negative or an inter-positive. But Warner Archives pretty much just, because that's who would handle this kind of release, they just pretty much straight up came out and said, it's not worth it. Like, this film will never make the money back to justify us going to that efforts to restore it to even its theatrical release, uh, to say nothing of the two-and-a-half-hour cut. My hopes are not very high uh, that this Blu-ray box set will be anything more than the same cut as on the DVD, um, and that's not a slap at uh, Shout Factory. Um, I think it's just an acknowledgement of, you know, 
the financial uh, side of it that I doubt Shout Factory is going to see it as being worth their while to invest in that kind of restoration, uh, especially if they're putting out as part of a box set. I mean, if they're going to do that, they would put that much money into uh, rebuilding the theatrical cut even. Uh, I would think they'd have to get their money back by releasing it by itself. I am hoping at the very least, though, that they can include like an, a standard def version of the uh, two and a half hour cut because uh, presumably the video master of that, the tape master from which the VHS tapes were made, that still exists. And so they could at least put that on there as like like a standard def. And they've done that before. They, they put out the 70s uh, disaster movie, Two Minute Warning, which I'm a huge fan of about the sniper at the football game. Uh, I watched that almost every uh, Super Bowl Sunday. And there was a two and a, that, that only had one theatrical release version. There, was, there wasn't like a different international version or anything like that. But there was a longer version for TV that was only available um, in SD, standard def. And they did include that on the disc, even though it was just standard def. And I watched it. It was cool to, cool to finally see that. But yeah, uh, just to, overall, though, just to get all these movies in one set, really, really psyched for that. So, uh, passings in the world of media lately. Of course, the big one's Alan Arkin, uh, the incredible Academy Award-winning actor, passed away age 89. Um, what a range, though. Like, you know, everything from the... Arkin played everything from the, um, you know, incredibly uh, terrifying uh, sunglasses-wearing disguise-using uh, uh, villain of Wait Until Dark, uh, terrorizing a blind Audrey Hepburn, to, of course, you know, the, one of my favorite films he's in, uh, Freebie and the Bean, where he and um, James Conner are, are in this one of the original buddy cop movies. Um, and just it's a film with so much uh, great action and black comedy in it. But, uh, you know, Arkin, been around forever, came on the scene uh, with a couple Oscar nominations in the 60s for Best Actor for uh, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which, again, speaks to range. you got a comedy on one hand and this very uh very heavy drama on the other uh, but it wasn't until much later in his career that he finally took home the award best supporting actor for little miss sunshine and then earned another nomination for argo but i'm just looking at his uh, filmography of course he was in the original the in-laws um edward scissorhands glengarry glenn ross the rocketeer uh, you know, kids of the 80s will remember him uh vocally from the, the last unicorn uh he was uh, has that kind of footnote in film history for uh, starring in the film Inspector Clouseau, which was the third of the Pink Panther movies, the one where Peter Sellers and Blake Edwards didn't want to come back. So it was kind of like a one-off where Alan Arkin did the role. He directed a couple films as well, uh, both of which he also starred in, Little Murders and uh, Fire Sale. Uh, something interesting I didn't know is that he'd actually, early before he really even was into the acting, is that he was a folk singer. He was in a, a group called The Terriers. And actually his very first film role was in a, uh, a B-movie musical called Calypso Heatwave, which I'm familiar with that movie. I didn't realize he was in it, and he's in that as a member of the Terriers, and that's actually his first uh, film. Um, and, of course, on the small screen, too, he had recent success with uh, the, Kaminsky the Kaminsky Method uh, with Michael Douglas um, and had gotten two Emmy nominations for that series. He, he had a total of six Emmy, nation Emmy nominations over his career. And... Uh, yeah, so it's just really sad to see him pass away. He had some kind of cardiac issues. Uh, of course, uh, he has several sons who are in the film and television business as well. Adam Arkin, probably the best known of those, uh, who's on Chicago Hope. And uh, uh, Halloween horror fans know him from Halloween H2O. But yeah, sorry to see him pass away at 89. Uh, Marja Dean uh, left us at age 101, which is a very good age to leave. Uh, not... not not a household name, of course. Uh, she worked mostly in lower-budgeted films, but she does kind of have a keynote role in that she was the leading lady, the scream queen of Hammer Films is the Quatermass Experiment, which is a really, really good movie. Definitely recommend checking that out. Quatermass, uh, the character of Professor Quatermass was kind of like a proto-Doctor Who without the... Uh, without being an alien who uh, has multiple lives, but just that kind of like inquisitive, uh, investigative uh, scientist, that kind of aspect of it. And it was a character that was originally featured in these different television serials made over in Britain, and they were uh, one by one adapted into feature films. Um, and the first of those was the Quatermass Experiment. And Marjorie, she wasn't British, but she uh, 
she did uh, go over there to film the, the lead female role in that movie. Um, a lot of her stuff, like I said, was tended to be more towards B-movies, um, not necessarily always exploitation, sometimes stuff like Sins of Jezebel or uh, Moro Witch Doctor, but she was also in a couple of Samuel Fuller, Fuller's movies like The Baron of Arizona. Once in a while showed up in a studio project like uh, Take Care of My Little Girl and The Revolt of Mamie Stover. Both of those were over at Fox. Even produced a couple uh, low-budget films, including... Uh, Terrence Fisher's horror comedy, The Horror of It All. Uh, but yeah, passed away age 101. And uh, also, we lost uh, Academy Award-nominated producer Lawrence Terman, who uh, got his Best Picture Oscar nod for The Graduate, a little film you may or may not have heard of. But he passed away age 96. Um, and you just look at, again, this is a guy who just look at his filmography, just some of the stuff he produced. Uh, he did John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, he did uh, both short circuit films, American History X, uh, The River of Wild, uh, Pretty Poison with Anthony, Herkin, with Anthony Perkins, the cult classic 60s film, uh, produced uh, Judy Garland's last movie, uh, I Could Go On Singing, and directed a couple movies as well. Uh, one of which I really want to see. It's a Richard Benjamin comedy from the 70s called The Marriage of a Young Stockbroker. And unfortunately, it's a Fox film, so it's tied up at Disney, and I don't think they even, I don't think Fox even gave it a DVD release. Um, he, and the other film he directed was uh, Second Thoughts, which was uh, one of Lucy Arnaz's uh, attempts to uh, uh, be a leading lady on, on the big screen. Uh, but yeah, uh, again, really, really great filmography uh, that he left behind. We also lost age 92, uh, Spanish actress Carmen Sevilla, who, again, to people here, might not necessarily, necessarily be a name that's uh, familiar, but in Spain, she was uh, a big deal. She was a dancer, a singer, one of their highest paid stars over there. Um, probably one of her best known uh, roles to American audiences, though, would be in Nicholas Ray's King of Kings, in which she played Mary Magdalene. But uh, definitely most of her her uh, success was in her native Spain. Uh, fans of horror uh, will know her from uh, No One Heard the Scream, which is a 70s horror film, which Severn put out on Blu-ray not too long ago, uh, and she was the lead in that film. All right, now, time for the movie of the week. And being that this was just the 4th of July, I think it's the perfect time to talk about uh, a film that I watch every year um, at, in, on Independence Day, Day of Independence, and that's the 1972 musical comedy, 1776. So 1776 tells the story of the writing of the Declaration of Independence and initially started out as a play. It came out in 1969. Um songs and music by uh, Sherman Edwards, a guy named Sherman Edwards. And the play itself was written by Peter Stone, who by this time was already an Academy Award-winning screenwriter who had won the uh, Oscar for Father Goose, the Cary Grant movie, but who also wrote uh, one of my favorite films, uh, and that, that would be Charade, the very classic mixture of um, suspense and comedy, a lot of times referred to as the greatest Hitchcock movie never made by Hitchcock. Um, and in that same vein, he also wrote such films as Arabesque and uh, Mirage, these, these films dealing with intrigue and uh, uh, high glamour. Um, he would subsequently write The uh, Taking of Pelham 123, the original version of that. Um, and he, uh, he wrote the actual play, though, the book to the, book to the play. Um, now, when the play came out, it came out in 1969, and there was some concern about how well a play that even though it wasn't trying to be patriotic or, or uh, you know, uh, flag-waving or anything, but just by very nature of the fact that it was dealing with this kind of time uh, in, our, in our country's history, which is often viewed through a lens of patriotism, it was, wonder, it was wondered how well is this play going to do with the Vietnam War going on. And the play ended up being a, a huge hit and um, won multiple Tonys, uh, including for its director, Peter H. Hunt, who, uh, side note, Helen Hunt's uncle, and good old Jack Warner, no longer at Warner Brothers Studios, the, the company he founded with his three other Warner Brothers. Yeah, Jackie Boy was out on his own, um, and he decided to buy the rights with his own money, the film rights, to the play. And uh, in doing so, in, in bringing this uh, to the big screen, brought with him the director, Peter H. Hunt, who had not previously directed any feature films, 
and a good deal of uh, the cast. Uh, most of the cast in the film had appeared in a stage production of this at one time or another, if not the original Broadway run. Likewise, uh, Peter Stone came on board to write the script for the film, obviously being uh, an old hand at that. So, as the title implies, it's set in the year 1776 in the summer leading up to uh, July 4th in Philadelphia. The Continental Congress is gathered, representatives from each of the 13 colonies, uh, debate, deciding, they're not even debating whether or not they are going to declare independence from England. They're trying to even get to the point where they can debate it. Uh, basically, there's these two factions. One, which believes that uh, independence is the way to go, and kind of the main leader of that faction is uh, John Adams of Massachusetts, played by William Daniels. Uh, years before he would uh, go on to uh, uh, make himself a household name among multiple generations of TV watchers via Knight Rider, Sane Elsewhere, and later Boy Meets World, but by now already a very well-known uh, stage actor. Uh, he'd actually gotten a Tony nomination for uh, his performance as John Adams in 1776 and had been in several films. He kind of leads the pro-independence uh, faction, but the problem is that he, uh, as they joke about in the film, is obnoxious and disliked. He's someone who just doesn't know how to really work well with others. He's so passionate and committed to what he believes in and so sure that he's right that he doesn't know how to uh, make the message malleable and palatable for those uh, on the opposing side so that, so that he can uh, convince them to come over. And his two kind of his two chief allies, unsurprisingly, are Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, inventor of the stove, as he's often referred to in the film. Uh, he's played by the great Howard De Silva, a wonderful character actor. His career goes way back to old Hollywood. Uh, a lot of big films throughout the 40s, like The Lost Weekend and The Sea Wolf and Sergeant York. Uh, unfortunately, in the early 50s, he was a victim of the Hollywood blacklist brought about by the uh, communist witch hunts. And uh, basically, there's like a 10-year stretch where... He's really not doing anything in the way of TV or film. He just came to the East Coast and was doing theater. Um, but then as the uh, effects of uh, McCarthyism and the uh, communist scare kind of waned away, he was able to reestablish himself. And he, he like Daniels, has uh, had played this role on the original Broadway uh, production. And then Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, uh, also played by uh, uh, someone from the original Broadway opening, and that's Ken Howard. Uh, this is... Uh, Ken Howard, a pre-White Shadow, but already having started a few movies as well. Now, the other side, the side that feels that the, the what should be done is to kind of reconcile with uh, England. Yes, this is about a year after uh, shots were fired at Lexington and Concord, but uh, this side feels still that uh, peace can be reattained. And heading up that is uh, another representative from Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin State. Uh, John Dickinson is this person's name. Uh, and he's played by Donald Madden. Um, Donald Madden did not play this role on the stage. And this, in fact, would be his only feature film. Did a lot of TV work. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of the actors in this film seem to be based in like the New York area. Because if you look at their filmographies, they have a lot of them. They have very few feature film roles. They do a lot of TV, and it's like East Coast TV. It's soaps. A lot of them were in dark shadows. Um, it's theatrical work. Um, so it's a really interesting uh, collection of, of these performers, many of whom, you know, it's... They're, they're incredibly gifted performances. That they're, they're great. They're so memorable and so unique, but they're not people who you see necessarily in a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it's not like they're even filling out the cast with, like, the, uh, you know, the John Carradines or the uh, Struther Martins or just, like, the, the kind of character actors who you see in film all the time. These are character actors who are, are great at what they do, just like those kind of more venerable Hollywood character actors, but they're not seen in films a lot. They're just not. Uh, they're just not doing a lot of feature work, um, which is, it makes for a very interesting uh, uh, goulash of a cast. Uh, you know, especially when you think that you're, this is a this is a big studio film, right? Jack Warner's producing it. It was released by Columbia Pictures. It's adapting this huge play. It was a big hit. Um, and your three leads are William Daniels, Howard De Silva, and Ken Howard. Um, none of whom are stars in the sense of star power, but all, of course, recreating those those top three, especially recreating their Broadway roles. And it was a great choice. It was great to do it that way. I think that. Uh, 
uh, it was a, a really uh, perfect decision to, uh, to stick with so many of the original uh, play actors instead of trying to like maybe go for a more traditional lead uh, in this case. But I can't speak enough about just how good this movie is. Um, I mean, Peter Stone, if you've watched Charade, if you've watched The Taking of Pell 123, he's a great writer. I mean, think about those two movies. They're both kind of rooted in suspense in a way. Uh, obviously, Charade is a much more lighthearted film. And again, it kind of also uh, tacks on that 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 cover of glamour and, and beauty and glitz with you know, Audrey Hepburn and uh, Cary Grant looking as good as any human being has a right to and uh, traveling all over Europe and um, high entry. But then you go to sort of like taking a poem 123, which is a much more visceral, gritty down in the, the subway tunnels of New York City with uh, uh, ruthless subway hijackers threatening to kill people. So yeah, they're both kind of suspense films, but they're very much worlds apart within suspense. And they're both incredible film movies. And a big part of that is the writing. I mean, very memorable dialogue in those films, but also just really well-constructed storylines. And likewise, I mean, 1776 it has just such a great use of humor in it within the writing. And not just the writing of Stone's uh, screenplay and play, but also just the songs as well by Sherman Edwards. I mean, the humor in this film, it it's such a great and skilled interweaving of comedy and humor within a storyline that has so much built-in drama in it, right? The formation of a country, which is, I mean, think about it. The, the, the Turkish colonies had already engaged um, in military action against their their motherland. And an army had already been formed with George Washington as the leader. This is a year after those initial shots were fired. And so much hangs on the balance. Are you going to go forward and create this new nation? And if so, then you have to you know, fight against this much larger, more skilled military force? Or are you going to try to, you know, send out the olive branch, make peace, but then hope that those of you who were initially favored independence won't be hanged as traitors? So much going on, so much that has uh, dramatic potential. And this this film does such a great job of never disregarding that, never minimizing it, never making fun of the drama itself, Yet at the same time, just overflowing with such great memorable humor, um, it it really humanizes these characters, these kind of legendary historical characters. It makes them seem grounded and real, people that we can laugh with and laugh at. Um, it just does such a great job uh, of melding these these different these different vibes of like I said of, of comedy and drama into one unique thing, one into one cohesive um, tone. Uh, and just to, just to keep such a story moving with so many pieces, because you remember, this is about the Continental Congress. So there's 13 colonies and some of these colonies have multiple key representatives. Plus you have the head of the Continental Congress, John Hancock. You have, um, a couple other very important characters. There's the, uh, the congressional custodian. Um, there's the, uh, uh, the secretary of the Congress, you have so many different characters that you have to make sure the audience keeps them distinguished from each other, remembers who they are, remembers who their different personalities are, what they're fighting for, they for independence against it. And pretty much none of them are being played by actors who are really super familiar, right? It's not like you can say, okay, I know who that character is. That's you know, that's Gregory Peck or that's Brad Pitt or that's James Dean or something like that. You know, it's like they're all, almost all being played by actors who had, you know, very little, uh, virtually no uh, name or facial recognition to the audience. And yet when you watch this movie, you always know who everyone is. There's never a moment in this film where you forget, oh, who is this guy? What, what side of this debate is he on? Why does he feel the way he feels? Is he someone who's firmly entrenched in his beliefs, or is he one of the ones who's kind of like straddling that each side is trying to convince of their own beliefs? You always know exactly who each person is. Um, and that's incredible. And that's a testament to, a big part of that is a testament to, um, you know, Stone and Edwards with their script, their play, their songs, and creating these distinct characters 
a big another big thing that that's worth testament though too is just the cast themselves that they're able to bring alive completely disappear into and bring alive these these characters in a way that distinguishes them from each other without ever seeming forced you know it's not like one of the actors is like oh man they can remember that i'm playing the representative from new hampshire instead of new jersey you know what i'll do I'll stick like a big boa feather around my neck or something. You know what I mean? Like they could, they're never doing anything outrageous or ostentatious to uh, remind you, oh, I'm this guy. You're probably going to forget who I am because you don't know who I am as an actor and you don't know who this person is from history. So I'm going to do something really uh, showy and loud to remind you of who I am. Uh, no, they're just completely dedicated to bringing alive with very nuanced, effective performances these very well delineated characters very well drawn by Stone Peter Stone the screenwriter and playwright and Sherman Edwards the songwriter but a kudos to the hunt Peter Hunt first film he ever directed in fact the play was the first play he ever directed and you watch this movie and yes I think a lot of people would say this could have been more cinematic now they definitely did open it up for for it being a film uh, there are times where they go outdoor and they're able to do slightly wider shots of uh, Philadelphia. Um, and there's these scenes where John Adams is interacting with his wife, even though she's back at home. Basically what they did is they had the actor, you know, William Daniels as John Adams and the actress Virginia Vestoff, who played uh, his wife, Abigail. Even though they're in different, you know, she's back in Massachusetts while he's in Philadelphia, they'll speak to each other through their letters. And so they'll be on screen at the same time, even though they're in different locations talking to each other. And that will kind of give a chance to kind of show her back in uh, back in uh, Massachusetts. So there are times where they do definitely expand uh, the play beyond a, a, a theatrical bounds. But I could definitely see people watching this and saying, uh, it's, there really were a lot more opportunities to be even more cinematic. And I think that there is maybe some truth to that. There are some, I think if this was maybe Hunt's third film or fourth film that maybe it would feel a little bit more film-like rather than stage-like, but that's not saying... I'm saying it would feel, feel more film-like. That's not to say that it doesn't feel film-like as it is. Um, I think he does a phenomenal job, all the more so as a first-time director, in, in staging this film in such a way, again so that there's no confusion. This is a film ripe for confusion. I mean, it's just, I can't emphasize it enough. You go into this story, yeah, you're going to know who Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson are and John Adams and maybe John Hancock, but you're not going to know who all these other people are, the, you know, Rutledge of the Carolinas and, you know, Lyman Hall. You're not going to rem- know who these people are, probably the average person from their, from their uh, you know, from their history classes back in, you know, high school or whatever. And you're going into the story and you have all these characters who are constantly interacting with each other in this one location. Uh, and like I said, yeah, they're, they're played by non, non-recognizable people. And again, to, to Hunt's credit, his directing, his, his placement of the camera at any given point um, is just so effective in making it never seem static. This film never, even though it's the good chunk of it takes place in this one location inside, uh, inside the uh, the the meeting place of the uh, of the Congress, Independence Hall. It never feels uh, theatrical or stage bound or set bound because, and part of that is because of the, the choices they make to open it up a little to go outside at times, and even just even just just out to the front of the building or the side. But it's also because Hunt constantly knows where to move the camera. He knows when to have a close-up versus a medium shot. He knows when he should be on Adams versus Dickinson, when to be on the guy who's talking versus the guy who's reacting. His placement of, his directing of this is so good at just being good. I mean, like, he just goes so far beyond uh, the very minimum of what you would need to... uh, to keep this from feeling set-bound, to keep this from feeling like just a film to play. Because I've seen that in movies. Like, I, you know, random example, Laurence Olivier, the famous movie he did with Marilyn Monroe, The Prince and the Showgirl, which was based on a play, uh, you know. Uh, and uh, the making of that movie was the inspiration for the film My Week with Marilyn with Michelle Williams and Kenneth Branagh. And that's a movie that just, it feels like 
basically like they filmed the play almost like, you know, um, or even a movie that's not based on a play, like all about Eve, uh, Joseph Mankiewicz famous film, you know, that's a very, a very static film. Um, and it's very dialogue driven. Um, and 1776, again, without ever seeming ostentatious, without ever seeing, you know, without ever having the camera zooming all over the place or soaring through, sometimes there can be that temptation when you're adapting a play for the big screen to really, let's do everything we can do possible to make sure people don't think it was a play. Let's really, you know, let's, you know, nowadays, I think if they film this, they'd have like, they'd start out with a, probably a drone shot flying through Philadelphia and underneath horses' hooves and up in the air. And it would be like, it'd be too much. And they did just such a great job of hitting that right balance of opening it up, of, of editing and uh, placing the camera and making those cutting decisions in such a way that um, it just constantly feels moving. It constantly feels fresh. It constantly feels, the film constantly feels energetic. And that there's really no confusion about what's going on or who believes what or who these characters are. I mean, just to pull that off, especially for a three-hour film, especially when you're a first-time director and a lot of these uh, cast members are more TV-based and, and stage-based, it's just an incredible feat and uh, just, just a testament to, to the craft involved. It's a great film. I, I love this film. Um, and William Daniels, I mean, the film did get one Oscar nomination uh, for cinematography for uh, Harry Stradling Jr., um, whose father was a famous cinematographer, Harry Stradling Sr., of course, uh, multiple Oscar winner, shot like My Fair Lady and Guys and Dolls, and Jr., he also shot a lot of big movies. He did The Way We Were and Little Big Man, um, and definitely has some really great, uh, especially some uh, really great low-light uh, cinematography in this film. Um, there's a song uh, sung by a, uh, a young courier in the uh, colonial army mostly sung by him uh and it's almost uh, done entirely to candlelight with inside uh independence hall um and just really really well shot uh, but william daniels totally should have gotten nominated for an oscar i mean all the actors are good in this movie there isn't a bad performance of the bunch um and especially shout out to uh donald madden playing john dickinson of the uh anti-independence side uh, again, whose only feature film this was, and who sadly died at the age of 49. That's another thing. You go through the, a lot of the cast in this film. William Daniels is still with us, of course. Uh, but a lot of the actors who actresses who passed on died very young. Many of them did not make it to 70 or even 65. But Donald Madden, who plays Dickinson, it's a delicious performance. His elocution is amazing. His diction is just it's just incredible. But Daniels. I mean, that is an Oscar-worthy performance as John Adams. It is such a defining performance. And, of course, like I said, other people know him from St. Elsewhere. He's Kit the Car. Or he's uh, the teacher or principal whatever. I never watched Boy Meets World. It's the subsequent generation. My sister's a fan of it. But, uh, you know, he's from that generation. He's known from those TV shows. But to me, this is who William Daniels is. And I've seen, like I said, I've seen him in other movies, too, and guest shots on TV. Again, totally completely at the very least nominated for an oscar and he could have been nominated in either category give him best supporting or lead it's an ensemble cast we've talked about the politics of the oscars before too but i mean it's just such uh his passion uh his communication of the passion of john adams um his impatience <laughs> with the way things are going his uh frustration his humor uh it's just a fully embodied character uh just a unbelievable performance and I was curious, I was like, who was he going up against that year? So that, this film came out in 1972, so that was the 1973 awards. So again, this is a performance, William Daniels, he could have been nominated Best Actor or Supporting Actor, it's kind of like that kind of a, he's, he's the lead in many ways, but because of the ensemble nature of the piece, he could have gone either way. Uh, Best Actor nominations were given to both Michael Caine and Lawrence Olivier for Sleuth, Paul Winfield for Sounder, Pedro O'Toole for The Ruling Class, and the winner was Marlon Brando for The Godfather. Now, of course, even if Daniels had been nominated in that category, Brando was going to win no matter what. In supporting uh, category, uh, The Godfather had three nominations in supporting actor, Al Pacino, James Conn, and Robert Duvall. Also, Eddie Albert for The Heartbreak Kid. And then the award actually went to Joel Grey for Cabaret. So a lot of, you know, it was a pretty, pretty impressive year for films. You know, Godfather, Sounder, Cabaret was that year. Um... 
Poseidon Adventure. My girl Shelly Winters got nominated that year. Uh, John Houston's Fat City came out that year. Um, boy, I, I, he should have been nominated. Give him a, make a sixth nomination. Whatever. I mean, my guy, he's so good in this film. Um, it's interesting because uh, John Jakes, the author, wrote North and South. He also wrote a series of books which anybody who goes to garage sales is probably familiar with because you always see them there, the Kent Chronicles. And it's this never-ending series of books that traces this one family throughout American history. And they adapted the first three books into these like three-hour TV movies in the late 70s, uh, The Bastard, The Rebels, The Seekers. And they kind of cover, the first two cover the American Revolution, and then The Seekers, the third one, is kind of time right after that. And... Definitely, those are ones I recommend for 4th of July viewing as well, if you can get a hold of them. The DVDs are out of print. But the interesting thing is uh, William Daniels is in the first two. I think it's the first one, The Bastard, he plays John Adams. And this is after 1776, of course, because I think it came out like 78, that TV movie. And then in uh, the second one, The Rebels, he plays Sam Adams, John Adams' cousin. Um, but yeah, this is just interesting to see. Also, a big shout-out to... Um, for this cast to uh, David Ford, who plays John Hancock, um, who, you know, congressional president, known for his wicked, bad, large uh, signature, um, as well as to Ralston Hill, um, whose only film this was. He plays uh, the secretary of Congress, uh, Mr. Thompson, um, who's always uh, uh, calling for the votes and as well as... Uh, uh, reading the the various uh, memos and dispatches that the Congress receives from the never seen George Washington, um, I'm just thinking about the movie now. I'm just cracking up at some of the lines, the great lines of dialogue. It's it's the humor in it is so funny. Um, interesting release history when it came out. Uh, Jack Warner was tight with a uh, old Tricky Dick there, Richard Nixon. And there was a song in the movie called Cool Considerate Men, sang by Dickinson and the other uh, anti-independence figures. And it was a song about kind of the viewpoints of conservative men of property and wealth. And uh, Nixon, being a Republican, wasn't too keen on that and urged Jack Warner to cut that from the, from the release film, which Warner did. And he told the... Uh, told the editor to destroy it, the footage, but she ended up saving it. And so now you can actually see that footage restored back into it. Uh, this film's been released by Sony on DVD, Blu-ray, and now 4K. And the 4K release looks incredible. has that, what's really kind of the cut to go with, it's called the, the director's cut, and that reinstates that that musical number that had been cut out, Cool Considerate Man, it reinstates the original opening credits that had also been removed. Um, originally, they had this really cool mural showing, uh, you know, uh, Revolutionary Era Philadelphia uh, as the credits played over the opening. Um, and But it was only like shown one time with that opening, and subsequently, whenever they showed the movie, it just opened up with the opening scene, and just the word 1776 appears over it, I guess, and you don't even see the opening credits. The uh, 4K release, though, from Sony has, like, four cuts of the movie. It has the original theatrical release that was shortened. It has the director's cut with the with that number put in I told you about. It has an extended cut, which is a slightly longer than the director's cut. It's more about timing and pacing. I didn't care for that cut as much. I watched that once. Um, and it also has this 180-minute cut, which is, like, on the laser disc where, like, everything's in it. And I'm definitely I'm interested to check that out. I haven't watched that yet. But, um, yeah, I watched this. It's just a three-hour movie, and it never... That's the other thing, too. Sometimes people will be like, uh, how, how do you feel about watching long movies? Well, to me, the length of a movie really doesn't matter. Uh, size doesn't matter. Uh, it's really about, uh, you know, the quality of it. Uh, you know, there are movies that are, like, 75 minutes long that could be a chore to get through. But this is definitely a three-hour movie that never, never drags. Um, now, I say that, in saying that, of course, y'all know how I feel about movies from this era. If you're not a fan of this era, you probably just the editing, the the, the different way that they made films back then might might grind against your na native sensibilities. But to me, it just yeah, it's just it never, it never is a chore to sit through this. Uh, my girlfriend and I watch it, like I said, every year around this time, and it never gets old. Uh, I'm a big fan of this too because. I had an interest in kind of American Revolutionary Era history when I was younger. 
that kind of, uh, not so much like the very early settlements of America with like the pilgrims and stuff, but once you get into like the early 1700s and things like, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, French and Indian War era, the kind of the era chronicled in James Fenimore Cooper's novels going into the American Revolution, I always, I always found that era really interesting. Um, and I liked things like, you know, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which was set around that time. And of course, we all know how I feel about the 70s. I love the 70s. Uh, um, I'm a big fan of that era. And of course, in the 70s, you had the Bicentennial, uh, the 200th uh, anniversary. So it's like this era is like the perfect melding of two things I love. It's it's the 1970s and everything I love about that with <laughs> with uh, colonial history. Uh, and, and even though this movie came out uh, four years before the Bicentennial, um, it's it's basically good enough. It's it's like it came out in the Bicentennial. Uh, so it's like the perfect uh, cinematic uh, amalgamation of my my interest in uh, Revolutionary War history and my love for uh, the Bicentennial in the 70s. Um, I couldn't ask for more. I kind of wonder why they didn't just wait. It seems like so obvious to me that you would wait until 1976 to have the movie come out. But hey, who am I to say? Maybe they just didn't. You know, maybe they didn't think waiting longer would there'd be less interest in in the play. Uh, it's interesting. You, you think now you have a play like Hamilton, which is about kind of a, a similar era in history, and they did like a a TV version of it on like Disney Plus or something. But it was basically just a film play, an actual an actual film narrative film adaptation of Hamilton still hasn't happened yet, and that's been out for a while. Uh, and that's partially done to ensure that the actual theatrical run is successful. So yeah, uh, just just thinking out loud. I just think it's interesting that they didn't just wait till 1976. But hey, whatever. Maybe they wouldn't have had the same cast in it, and I would have been upset. Um, film didn't really do that great, though. I don't believe financially when it came out. Like it, the initial like screenings did good, but then it just overall the whole domestic total was not uh, not too uh, strong. Um, which I guess you know. I can see a film like this at that era. I mean, you think about this coming out the same year as The Godfather. This is around the same time as The French Connection and Dirty Harry. I mean, it's just, it is kind of a film that I could see audiences at that time maybe not responding to, maybe responding more to in the theatrical community where we're playing on Broadway with New York City uh, community. I could see them um, being more favorable to it than the wider film-going audience. It, like I said, it got the Oscar nomination for cinematography, got a Golden Globe nomination. But yeah, uh, I think it probably it, with time, its reputation has increased. I mean, it was never looked at as a bad film, uh, you know, by any means. But it just, I think, uh, the love for it has just kind of grown with time. Uh, did end up being Jack Warner's last movie, uh, the last film he produced. Then um, he passed away a few years later. But um, yeah, seventeen seventy six. Absolutely uh, recommend this film uh, for your Fourth of July viewing, along with Jaws and. Uh, uh, anything else you feel inclined to, Johnny Tremaine, um, uh, or any other such staples. But uh, yeah, I definitely get this before next July 4th. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you that they'll do it. They'll do it for this week's episode of Carpet City Cinema, our 4th of July episode. Uh, please continue to share the love about Hilo Films, about Carpet City Cinema, about Break Glass Movie. Um, Follow us on our various social media profiles. Uh, click the links, share the posts, all that good stuff. And thank you very much for tuning in. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>